Alright, I'm Robert Pearson and this is Follow the Leader. And we're doing another Blue Collar Bible Scholar. Where my goal is to take you from an uneducated, ignorant heathen all the way to the guy that's checking your pastor's footnotes in the middle of the sermon. Because he used that Greek word slightly wrong. So, today, I'm going to talk about church. And uh, I'll try not to get all ranty and on too many tangents, but we'll see what happens. And uh, I'm going to be a little scripture heavy later on. And uh, I, I looked them up, so it won't be all off the top of my head. I did look up the specific references. And uh, so, being transparent about that. Alright, so first off, the most important question we have is, what is church? Uh, which is, um, functionally, a church is any group of Christians gathered together. Done. That's it. It's that simple. Most of Christianity really is that simple, guys. Uh, because obviously the word church doesn't refer to the building, because that's not important. That's not, why would a building be more important than the people that fill that building that all believe the same things about God and all come together to, to work towards the same goal of seeing his, his kingdom. That, uh, that would be crazy. Now, there's a, a funny thing about the etymology of the word church. When people say, well, the church isn't a building, they're, they're kind of wrong in two ways. Uh, number one, the body of believers, the group of Christian humans, is referred to as a building. You are uh, spiritual stones being built up. You know, your, your body is a temple. You are, uh, we're referred to as the, the temple of God. As he, uh, he resides in us and is in Christian, in us individually and in Christians collectively. Um, we are a priesthood and also stones being built up in a spiritual building. A lot of building metaphors get used quite a bit in uh, the New Testament by, uh, by Paul. Paul refers to his ministry of building churches as a thing built on a foundation. Uh, Jesus talks about your life uh, as a building, a man who builds his house on a solid foundation versus on shifting sands. And in another sense, the word church actually means the building. Now, I say actually, etymology of a word is not the same as the definition of a word, and it's important to remember that and just kind of tuck that away in the back of your head. So the etymology of a word helps inform the way a word is defined, or at least was defined. But what is more important uh, is pragmatically what the person you're talking to thinks the word means. And most people think church means the body of people that meet in a building dedicated to God. And they'll refer to the building as the church building. Uh, but if you, if you want to be an absolute jerk, you can point out that the word church comes from the German Kirche. And the German word Kirche, for church, comes from the Greek word Karyoika, which comes from the phrase Karyosoikos, the Lord's house, which would really be Oikos Kiryu, if you're, if you're using proper like Greek phrasing to say, but uh, Karyoika became the, the colloquial phrase for the building Christians met in by early Greek Christians. 
because the Greek word for the body of believers is ekklesia, not kerioika. Kerioika, Lord's house, referred to the building that the ekklesia met in. Uh, early on, the, in the Bible times, Christians only met in homes or in repurposed synagogues, or they'd meet up at the temple. Because Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Jewish religion. And so all of the first 3,000 plus Christians were Jewish and were meeting at the temple and meeting in their homes with each other. And then as the church, <coughs> excuse me, as the church grew and spread, it got a little more formulized, uh, it got a little more formulaic and structured about how they met and when. There's several references to, to when they met, and there are some historical references that I, I forgot to look up. I will dig up and footnote this one because it's a little obscure to find. Um, and I forget which, I think it was a Greek writer or a Roman historian who makes a mention of Christians meeting before dawn on the first day of the week. You see, they didn't have eight-hour workdays and they didn't have weekends. So when you're a slave, you work from sunup to sundown, uh, sometimes longer, seven days a week. And that was your life. So the only time they had to go to church was when it was still dark outside. And they customarily met the first day of the week because that was when Jesus rose from the dead. Was on a Sunday morning. And it was uh, to start your week off right. And Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. It's not the Sabbath. It's not the seventh day of the week. It's not a day of rest. It's not a day devoted to the Lord. It's the day that the Lord rose from the dead. And so that's Christians met on Sunday morning. The Sabbath is on Saturday. Christians don't uh, follow Sabbath because they're no longer bound by the Old Testament laws of Judaism. They're, no, they're not bound by it. They can choose to follow it. Messianic Jews choose to continue following the Old Testament. And that's what the apostles did, as far as we can tell. The apostle Peter, did, was still he kept kosher. You're ten chapters in. You're almost halfway through the book of Acts. And the apostle Peter, the first pope, is still keeping kosher. And making a point of it like bragging about it to God himself, like, ah, nothing unclean's ever passed my lips, God. I'm okay. So it's important to remember that church wasn't the same way it's always been. And the way church is now is not explicitly commanded in Scripture. It's simply what a particular group has always done. It's been the tradition uh, that was born mainly out of pragmatism for what was useful and purposeful at that time um, and prayerfully undertaken by godly men. So that's where the Catholic Church comes from is it was the tradition of the Church at that time. And the main point that Protestants disagree with the Catholic Church on, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of little stuff and the reason all of that little stuff is there is because the Catholic Church takes their tradition as sacred, as holy, as having the same authority 
that the uh, the Bible has. They see sacred church tradition as on the same playing field as the Bible itself. And that's the main difference. That's why the uh, sola scriptura is sort of the big rallying cry for, um, for Protestant Christianity. And uh, even modern evangelicalism that is the, the kind of the larger side of, of Protestantism. Now, the, um, the, the Bible doesn't explicitly state how to go to church, or how to church, or why to church, or how often you go to church. What we have, largely as holdovers of tradition, is we meet on the first day of the week, in the morning, and there is a, we sing songs and hymns of praise to God, and then there is a teaching or instruction of, of scripture, of some kind of scripture exposition. And uh, exposition just means explaining and uh, elaborating on sort of how you would actually use what verse you found. Turn the other cheek. Okay. When? Why? How? Uh, what does that look like? You know, sprinkle in some jokes and funny stories so I continue to pay attention because you're still talking and I've got a, a pot roast on. These are all traditions, and uh, what what we do and why churches come together aren't always in harmony. Um, so largely, though, all of the all of the trappings of church are simply traditions, and a lot of them, though, we do see examples of in the Bible. Uh, we do know from uh, some historical stuff. Early Christians read the letters of Paul and the Gospels aloud. Uh, initially, they just read the Septuagint before they had any New Testament. They'd read some scripture aloud because that's what you do at synagogue. There'd be a reading of scripture together, some community prayers, and you know maybe a rabbi would sit there and break down some of the scripture you guys went over. That's what we do in church because... It's the Christianity is a Jewish religion, whether you like it or not, or acknowledge it or not. It is. Uh, modern Judaism is uh, quite a bit different than ancient first-century Judaism. They're not the same. Modern Judaism is rabbinical Judaism, and there is some important differences. Um, however, when you go, if you go to a, a Jewish synagogue, they sing songs and they read Torah. And, you know, maybe the rabbi will explain Torah a little bit. It's, uh, it's pretty basic stuff. Um, Christians add one other um, thing, and they do communion, or which is originally like a potluck with um, a spiritual um, tradition on the end of it, or it's a symbol, symbolic tradition on the end of it. Uh, they, they were originally called love feasts. I'm getting a little sidetrack from my, my main actual point. But our, our command, there's no explicit commandment on all of the nuances of how we come together and meet as a church. What we have are a collection of traditions, which are some pretty good ideas that have worked really well for thousands of years. Um, so it's, it's important to question tradition and say why, but once you get your answer of why, you, you shouldn't just upend and tear out traditions because why do we do this ah, and destroy it? Well, there's always a good reason, so find the good reason that it's there. Uh, if, the, if the reason it's there is, well, there's no reason, 
then, okay, well, let's look at maybe revising or amending. Um, but there's no problem with keeping a tradition whose only point is tradition is good. Uh, because, you know, tradition can be good and can be, uh, can be very edifying to have that sense of, of gravity and connection to the saints who came before you for thousands of years. That's the awesome thing about the Christian church. I don't like that they effectively worship Mary and saints. Uh, some of the theological nuance to it may not be actual worship, um, but prayer, I would argue, is a form of worship. And we don't have examples of praying to dead saints in the scripture. Uh, Saul, on the contrary, Saul pursuing a conversation with one dead prophet Samuel is actually a really bad thing. But, you know, it's, this is my mileage. Um, so, but we, we see lots of good examples. Uh, there are plenty of scripture. So I'm going to go, that's what I'm going to uh, sit and dig into the scripture a little more to, to pull out some of these good examples that we have that, that inform our church experience. And, uh, do, 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 do. Yeah, so I'm going to, I'm going to speak about the, the general purpose of church more, mainly because I'm not in a place where I can stare at my outline in a little more detail, because I'm driving, and it'd be nice to not die in traffic at all. Now, I'll, I'll get into the details of why in the footnotes of this. Um, so just understand, I have, I have footnotes from scripture for this, but it's important to go to church. And you can't just say that, oh, I worship in my own way, or my relationship's just between me and God. Because uh, that sounds good, but it is, in fact, not scriptural. Uh, while, yes, your relationship is between you and God, in as much as you've done to the least of these, my brethren, you've done unto me, there's an inherent assumption that you're going to be interacting with other humans and your interaction with other humans affects your relationship with Jesus. Almost is your relationship with Jesus, I would argue. In uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, it says, How can you say, I love God, but hate your brother? Uh, how can you, uh, that's, this is Robert's paraphrase, I don't remember the exact phrasing now, I, I thought I had it and then it, I got, I, I think I got phrase, phrases uh, flipped. If you hate your brother, you cannot love God. This is, this is a paraphrasing it, but it, it's, it's phrased in a little more like uh, proverbially, how can you say this and yet do this? You cannot love God if you hate your brother. If you can't love a person that you can see and touch and feel, then you cannot love somebody that you are incapable of seeing or touching or feeling. God's invisible. How, how do you expect to be able to love God if you can't even love that guy that you want to reach out and slap right now? Uh, the answer is you can't. You have to love other people and that means then that you're able to love God. So you can't just love God in a vacuum uh, and just, just hum to yourself 
and go, yep, this is loving God, I'm on the right track. No. Loving other humans is how you love God. It's all part of it. And so that's, in that sense, you can't just go, well, I love God, but I hate Christians. Well, then you don't love God. Because if you did love God, then you would love Christians. Uh, you can love somebody you want to reach out and slap. Anyone who's a parent knows this. How you interact with other humans affects your relationship with God. It affects it so intimately, it almost is your relationship with God. Once again, you don't want to be a, a pleaser of men. There is, there is a difference. Um, but when it comes to your actions and how you behave and what you do, you, if you have emotions and feelings, you then act to show them. Uh, yes, you can have feelings and then not act on those feelings, and then they're basically not real. Uh, if you have somebody who's starving to death, and you go, oh, I love this person so much. Oh, cool, are you going to give him a cheeseburger? Oh, well, no, that would be inconvenient. I think everybody agrees now you don't really love him. Uh, I don't care how much you say you feel warm fuzzies. You don't care about that guy if you're going to let him starve to death when you could easily prevent it. In the same way, if you hand the guy a cheeseburger, but you don't actually care, you're just doing it to, to look good or because it makes you feel good, uh, you don't actually love him. Uh, I will argue you have been more useful. Uh, you're useful to him, but it, that act doesn't do you any good. You're still hollow and empty inside. And so it's only when you have that combination of internal motivation and action that you then have genuine uh, anything, really. Uh, the James, in the book of James, chapter 1, I think, the, the end, of, end of chapter 1, he explains that if you don't, he uses this talking about faith. Um, it's very good to say that you have faith, but then not do anything. I'm going to show you I have faith by how I act. That's, that's an important part of being in a right and godly relationship, is making sure your internal thoughts and emotions match your external actions and behaviors and speech. Those things need to be the same. Because that's how we are like God. That's how we are like Jesus. Uh, God is the same. His word is his bond. And he always does what he says he will do. And all of his actions are genuine and heartfelt. And so in being like him, we should strive to do that. So church gives you, a collection of believers give you this amazing tool to do that. You have a group of people and they are all like-minded towards a goal of becoming like Christ in themselves, uh, each, each other and collectively as a group. As a group, the desire is to be more like Christ, and each individual in that group desires to be more like Christ. So you have this wonderful, almost lab, where you now are going to work on forgiveness when someone says something stupid. And you can forgive someone when they say something stupid and practice not saying stupid things while giving other people an opportunity to practice forgiveness. 
when you accidentally say something stupid because that's life. You're, you're going to mess up. It also gives you a format and a, a wonderful area. There, very early on in the church, you had this massive income disparity where you have poor people and, and rich people at the same church. James talks about it as apparently kind of a big problem in uh, chapter 2. He spends almost a whole chapter talking about, um, you know, they, they did uh, potlucks. So early church, integral to their gatherings was a potluck. The breaking of bread is stated. It, the, they use breaking of bread to refer to communion, the sacrament of communion, the, the, the holy institution of um, having this physical symbol, using bread and wine to remember Christ's last supper on earth and the fact that he's not going to drink the cup of fellowship until his kingdom is come and we are all in the new heaven and new earth and all the, all the awesome stuff, right, after the day of the Lord. Uh, the early church, they had a potluck and communion as the same thing. So they'd, they'd have a meal together and then they would save a little bread and wine at the end of that meal and they would all together partake and remembering the, the Lord's death and, um, you know, examining themselves and uh, having this, this continued remembrance that, that we're all of the, the same body of Christ and we're all going to, um, you know, partake of this fellowship one day when, when he returns. You know, remembering his return and remembering his sacrifice. Um, so remembering his sacrifice and looking forward to his return. In, in the act of communion, that was a part of a potluck dinner. And what had started to happen, uh, James bears this out, is the poor people would bring whatever they could to the potluck, and the rich people would bring a lot of stuff to the potluck. They're rich. They bring a lot of food. And then everybody would eat what they brought. And so the poor people who, you know, maybe couldn't afford to bring anything to the gathering, and the rich people who brought a lot of stuff to the gathering would leave the poor people out in the cold. They're like, oh, well, you just eat what you brought, bud. Sorry. And then, you know, they made sure the rich people got to all the nice seats up front, and the poor people got to sit on the floor out in the back. And uh, James just kind of shows it out, and he's like, this, that's not right. You're all the same in Christ. Uh, you should all be coming together as believers in Jesus. And so the church body gives you this wonderful place to now exercise charity where the more wealthy people of the congregation can reach out and help the poorer people of the congregation. Uh, you see that borne out very immediately in uh, Acts chapter 2, where you have Christians, or was a... Uh, yeah, 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 it's act, ends of, end, of, end of the chapter 2 of Acts. I'll give you the actual references later on when I, I dig into it more for you. But in Acts uh, chapter 2, they talk about Christians giving to any, everyone as has need. And they would, um, a lot of them sold some property, uh, which basically would have been their savings, and used it to help the poor among them. Uh, and they, they gave to each as, as had need, which is awesome. It's also not communism. Because that wasn't under the force of law. That was voluntarily, as an extension of charity as an extension of what people had need, voluntarily giving of what God had given them. Communism is when the government comes and takes what you have to give to other people. 
usually to the people in charge of communism. And so it's, it's important because that verse has gotten used poorly throughout history. Uh, the Puritans that settled America early on had all things in common, in common ownership. They weren't sharing with everybody as was needed. They had common ownership. And it was enforced by the force of their government. And very quickly they found the young men got lazy and didn't work. And the people that worked hardest had to work for everybody. And everybody was spiteful and hated it. And it, it, it failed. It almost killed them. And so they stopped it. Because it was dumb. and didn't work as a governmental system for a government. As a religious community, as a small, tight-knit local community, it functions because the person who is given to, who has need, winds up feeling a tremendous sense of guilt because their brothers just gave them out of their own pocket. They have to look him in the face every Sunday. They have to remember how much he gave them. He expects nothing back. There's no, there's no expectation of a repayment. There's no, uh, there's no enmity. There's no animosity. There's simply, I gave to you because you need it. It's okay. I don't expect anything in return, please. That, that makes any man worth his salt feel like garbage. And drives him to now, I have to work. I have to do more, achieve more. I have to be able to return this wonderful kindness. Um... You know, not maybe not to the same person, but to somebody else. I have to be able to give to others. Uh, and that gratitude is completely missing. When the government came in with a gun, stole that guy's money, and then gave it to me, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. It's not, it's not the same. It's not the same emotional interaction. So it's, it's not communism at all. And anytime Christian communities throughout history have tried it, it ends disastrously. I believe John Calvin tried it for a brief time in uh, his little locality. The Anabaptist in Munster, Germany was horrific. Uh, you can look up Munster. It's spelled like mo uh, like monster, but with a U, and I think it's E-U, uh, Munster, uh, like, like Herman Munster. But it's it, it ends disastrously every time it's implemented. The people on top immediately become corrupt and start skimming from the top of it, and the people at the bottom starve to death in short order. Uh, Munster had a little X factor of they were under siege currently. Um, so that, that affected things a little bit. But still, uh, communism doesn't work, and it is not a Christian principle. It's, it's a different thing. You, as a Christian, should be compelled to give to people as they have need, uh, but understand that also, because you love people, you're going to have the same common sense that a good parent has. If you just let your child continue to live at your house and keep giving him allowance even though he's 40, he will never leave your house and never go and accomplish anything. So it's good for him to feel the pain of hunger. It's good for him to be homeless for a long enough period of time to get it in his thick head that he has to get off his butt and work. And so... In a Christian community, there's going to be a point where, oh, this individual has abused our charity, and they're immediately cut off and kind of given the silent treatment in that community, which is immediately rescinded when they do things like work for themselves and take care of their own. And now they're welcome back in the community. It's one thing to have hardship. It's quite another to abuse what 
charity is extended to you. That's another word that's definition has changed dramatically. Uh, well, not, not too dramatically. Charity means unconditional Christian love. It's from the same root where we get the word cherish. And charity is in the Old Testament, in the, sorry, not the Old Testament, in the King James Bible, the way they translate the Greek word agape. I'm sure if you've been to enough uh, church sermons, you've heard the word agape preached on quite a bit. Agape, the unconditional godly love. Charity, that's what the word charity originally meant. If you were able to get your hand on like a 16 or 1800 uh, Webster Dictionary, I forget the, the year that Webster came out with the dictionary, like uh, 1820 or 1620 something. Uh, it's really old though, but if you get really old, there's, you can find them online. I think it's the 1620 uh, Webster Dictionary. You can look at the original definitions of some of these words. And it'll help you understand the, the King James quite a bit. Uh, charity meant unconditional love. That uh, makes sense why we call charities now is giving money to poor people. The word charity just means money given to poor people. I don't want your charity. Oh, you don't want my unconditional uh, love and affection that wants only your betterment and your, the, you know, the improving of your well-being? That you don't want that? Okay. Uh, you know, it's not just giving money to poor people initially. Now it just means giving money to poor people. Uh, nonprofit, charity, it's all kind of becoming the same, just giving money to poor people. The disadvantaged. Uh, so the other thing is the church body allows a, it's not just good for us as Christians to be able to practice some of these um, spiritual disciplines. It also is a force for good. There didn't used to be nonprofit organizations. There were just churches that would mobilize and do things. Uh, one of the largest, most useful uh, disaster relief efforts in America are churches completely unaffiliated with each other that immediately start sending so many supplies on school buses, school buses full of supplies and tractor trailers full of supplies that the communities they're sent to have to tell them to actually stop because it's annoying. Now, you'll have a bunch of these overblown secular humanists that go, oh, Christian charities are terrible. It's actually another small disaster in a disaster. Look, $30,000 of microwave meals that had to rot on a roadside and went to waste is not a disaster. It's a funny anecdote and an example of how generous Christians are that just a wall of supplies and bottled water, so much of it show up that it's really difficult for the logistics of getting them distributed to everybody that needs them. Um, but once again, it's a problem solved by churches. Because nonprofits have started up by Christians in churches to organize church relief efforts, uh, which usually result in, hey, just give us funds because liquid assets are easier to, to allocate and put uh, supplies where they're needed in a disaster. And so you start having these disaster relief fund, relief fund nonprofits that are coordinating all these different church efforts instead of just sending a school bus full of, you know, winter clothes and bottled water, which is also still really useful. And has a really long shelf life. Uh, but those are churches. And the church is good for communities and relief efforts. Now, there are individual bad actors that waste a bunch of money on a lavish building, that waste a bunch of money on private jets for their pastor. And uh, the answer to those churches is simple. Don't go there. Don't give them your money. 
Uh, find a church in your local community that is useful and good. Uh, I have a hard limit uh, based on my phone and how long it takes to render a video and splice videos together. I can't do more than about 40 minutes uh, to a video file. So I'm going to fly over the verses without actually reading them. I'll put the references down below uh, so you can read it on your own. Acts chapter 2 verses 42 to 47 is the early church and we see them teaching each other, uh, fellowshipping together, uh, taking communion or the potlucks, the breaking of bread is mentioned, and they are sharing with one another, not communism. And uh, they praise and worship songs together, praise of the Lord and singing. Uh, the other one is Hebrews chapter 10 uh, verses 23 to 25. This is about not forsaking the fellowship. It's good to come together and encourage one another, and it's important that you hang in and continue fellowshipping together. Don't, don't forsake the gathering together, uh, which is always the one that gets showed up. You need to go to church. You're going to hell. That's not necessarily the case. You don't see that enumerated in Scripture, but if you love God and love His people, why wouldn't you show up for a potluck and sing some good songs together? And then uh, Ephesians chapter 4 Verses 11 to 15 talks about the gathering together to uh, singing songs and hymns, spiritual songs, and the church offices that are instated for the edifying of the saints. You have uh, pastors, preachers, and um, all the different workers in the church offices that come together to make church happen and to, to help all of the church members. God it gave them as gifts to the church so that you know the church as a body can be strengthened and that why well to go do work in the world and all of those principles and concepts are there so it's very good to go to church and if you don't like i don't like what the church is doing well when was the last time you went to a church any church i guarantee you every single individual body of believers is different and it's important to remember that and it's important to understand that just like every McDonald's is different, every church you go to is going to be different. It doesn't matter if they're the same denomination and they're in the same town. There are different people there. And it's going to be an entirely different church. So what I am going to do now is explain how to find a good church. And this is important. So the first thing I'm going to tell you... Uh, I, I might get into it more another day, but the, the, the cliff notes is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are Mormons and they are not Christians. The Church of Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians. It is critical to understand those groups are not Christian. Now the fundamental principle for what is and is not a Christian is the divinity of Jesus. Every church has to believe that Jesus Christ is an eternal being that is a member of the Godhead. He is God, 100%, the Lord God heaven above, and a regular human man. That's the whole miracle of the incarnation. That is what Jesus is, is he's the God-man. He is our perfect example. God himself said, I can't believe you guys don't know how to be a human correctly. I'll do it. See, this is what you do. Now, that does not make salvation a matter of works. Because if you've screwed up even once in your life, you deserve hell. You deserve eternal condemnation. Death is 
the punishment for sin. Any sin. The way we avoid that as Christians is by accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord. His sacrifice, His horrible, torturous death on a cross, then replaces our death as necessary to uh, for justice. A lot of people go, I don't know, God doesn't like human sacrifice. Uh, Jesus came because human sacrifice is what's required for death. For death, a human has to die. But here's the thing. You can't move sin around like you're balancing your checkbook. You sinned, you die. The magic, the, the ethereal element, the extra special ingredient that exists is Jesus did not sin. He was fully capable of having sinned and did not. He resisted temptation his entire life, lived every bit the human man life that you and I lead, and did not sin at all. So when he died, it was an injustice. And therefore, his death had to be removed from the record. But he had already died. Well, he gets to come back to life. Oh, also, he can. He, it was an injustice. It was an infinite injustice. And therefore, he has infinite credit to apply his death to anybody he wants. That's how salvation works. Justice to be done, you have to die for your sin. The question is whether or not you stay dead. If you choose Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can be resurrected in the, the judgment. Everybody gets the second chance, right? The second judgment. But how you do there depends on what you do here, what you do now, what you do with Jesus. And I totally forgot how I got here from church. So when you're finding a church... That's what you're looking for. If that fundamental element is there, that Jesus is the, the God-man, then you found a decent church. And now the question is, do they teach from the Bible? Do they teach things that aren't in the Bible? Seventh-day Adventist is the other one. That's right. They won't think you're a Christian if you don't follow dietary laws. And that is completely antithetical to the entire book of Galatians and basically any time Paul opened his mouth. Uh, which is why I don't really count them as a church. Please don't go to one. Um, individual congregations are all right, if a little funny, uh, but they always go off the deep end, and some of them actually believe that they're uh, Bay, Betty White or Baker White or Ellen, Ellen G. White is there as a prophetess and actually Jesus Reborn, and they, they hold them as sacred scripture, and that's bad. That's not sacred scripture that's a random lady in the 20s saying a bunch of crazy stuff, preaching veganism and repeating what the um, medical doctors at the time said and plagiarizing stuff. No good. No good. So the way you find a church is you go on the internet and you just look for churches near you. If you have denominations that you prefer, do that. The denomination you choose should be based on your personal scripture. If you read the Bible and it makes sense to you, then you find a denomination that matches what you believe in your Bible. Because that way you won't constantly wince every time the preacher says a certain thing or phrases stuff in a specific way, and you're like, I don't agree with that. You're going to run into that in almost any church or denomination you go to. If you read your Bible for yourself and you know your personal theology, you're going to have some sticking points where you don't agree with everything. Um, I don't agree with 
every tenant of a Baptist church or of, you know, these various um, congregations I've been to, um, there are even some doctrinal nuances with the Assemblies of God that I currently attend that I don't 100% uh, come into line with. Um, but the, like 95, you know, almost 99% were on board. Um, I would say if you're 90% the same as a church, feel confident to go there. Um, but you pick pick a top five. It's, it's easy. Four or five churches that look good. When you search out the website, you search for the, the kids' programs, you know, whatever it is that you need, your family needs. Um, but, and then start with the church farthest away from your home. So you don't get lazy and you don't settle to go, well, it's close. And um, I would, I personally would be willing to drive up to an hour to find a good congregation because that's still a manageable commute. Um, but... Uh, your mileage may vary. But start with the church farthest away, and in a month, go to each church for one Sunday. And you'll know pretty quickly which church you'd like to go to. Uh, if you're still undecided, because there are only four or five churches, I would recommend spending the next four or five months and spend a month at each church, starting with the church farthest away. And don't just go to the Sunday service if you're still undecided. Go to, um, I'd recommend in, in that week, most churches have a, a Wednesday night service, so in that week, go to this church service, go to the second, uh, the evening service, so they got one on the evening, on Sunday evening, and then go to the Wednesday night service. And go to each of those every week, even if you don't plan to regularly attend those services, go there. Know what's happening, because a lot of times different people will show up to the different services, and so you really get a fuller context and a fuller flavor of what the church is about, and what the people are about, and who and how the pastor actually is. I will let you know now, err on the side of a smaller church. Don't go to a giant big church because it has all the programs. You want a smaller church where you know everybody's name. Find a church with uh, 150 people or less. I forget the, the guy's name for the, the fancy number of the maximum number of relationships you can maintain. But you're going to feel more welcomed. You're going to feel more at home. It's going to feel warmer generally. And you're going to enjoy your experience a little more when you know the people teaching your kids in the morning. And um, you know the pastor, and the pastor actually can know your first name then in a church that's under about 150, 100 people. So, and uh, volunteer. As soon as you can, as soon as you get there, once you've been at that church for more than a, a month or so, find a ministry you can volunteer in. Teach a class, um, help watch kids in the, in the, the uh, children's church or the, the nursery. Do something and volunteer at your church. And that's all I got for you now. Uh, look up the verses. I will throw the verses down below and not make you look them up on your own because this is kind of an important one. And uh, that's it. Please don't take my word for it. I'll see you next time. Godspeed.